Welcome to Saints. In this podcast, we'll be discovering and discussing fascinating insights to topics and events found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the latter days. This new four-volume narrative is a history of the Restoration. You can also read it and all the material we'll be discussing today on LDS.org or on your Gospel Library app. And now, Saints. I'm Ben Godfrey, and today I have two wonderful guests with me. First, a Ph.D. historian and the director of the Church History Library in downtown Salt Lake City, Keith Erickson. Welcome, Keith. Thank you. Glad to be here. And joining us again, our great friend Sarah Eyring. Sarah has recently read Saints Volume 1 and will be sharing her thoughts and questions in our episode today. Welcome, Sarah. I'm glad to be here, too. Today, we're going to be talking about two chapters in Saints Volume 1, uh, chapter 19, Stewards Over This Ministry, and chapter 20, Do Not Cast Me Off. Keith, maybe you can set the scene for us. We've, we've got a bit of a cholera outbreak. What's happening as we start chapter 19? Yeah, we open with uh, the end of the Camp of Israel story. They finished their, their work, so they think they're coming back. And then right at that moment, there's a cholera outbreak, and dozens of people are sick. In fact, uh, just about a dozen of them die from this encounter with this illness, which was a common illness in the 19th century. You were always watching out for cholera, but this one struck and hit and hit hard. And maybe just as a point for our, our listeners, cholera, it still exists today. People, you can still get cholera. We often don't see it because we have better sanitary conditions, clean water, clean food. But if you were to get that, it's, it's a horrible feeling fevers, uh, muscle cramps, and really the most significant thing is just terrible diarrhea. It's an awful thing to get and obviously can be fatal. Yeah, and in the 19th century, these outbreaks would sweep through entire communities. We see in the 19th century records that there used to be a town, and then there was a cholera outbreak, and then there's no more town anymore in that area. It's, it, was, it was serious. It was scary. So we have this kind of brush with death. Um, even Joseph and uh, many of the leaders of the church are very ill. But the camp returning to Kirtland does spur some construction at the uh, Kirtland Temple. Let's listen to a little clip here from the book about the building of the Kirtland Temple. The return of the camp spurred construction in the summer and fall of 1834. The saints quarried stone, hauled it to the temple lot, and built up the temple walls day by day. Joseph labored alongside workers as they cut stone blocks from a nearby creek. Some worked in the church's sawmill preparing lumber for beams, ceilings, and floors. Others helped lift wood and rock up the scaffolding to where it was needed. Emma and other women, meanwhile, made clothes for the workers and kept them fed. Valate Kimball, Heber's wife, spun 100 pounds of wool into thread, wove it into cloth, and sewed clothes for the workers not keeping so much as an extra pair of stockings for herself. So this was a kind of a community affair. I think it's so incredible how many jobs it required to make everything go smoothly in this work, or at least productively. I didn't even think about the fact that, of course, the men would need work clothes that would kind of be durable and that somebody would have to make those. That was such an interesting aspect to learn about and cool to think that women and children were also involved in the building of this temple. So we have some other issues happening at the temple. Work's proceeding forward, but the church is deeply in debt to pay for all this construction, as well as we lost a ton of money in Missouri and 
Can you tell us a little bit about the financial straits of the church at this time? Yeah. Sometimes it helps to compare it with today. Today, when the church, or really any entity, undertakes a big construction project, they'll line up all the financing at up front. And the banks require that, the regulators require it, the shareholders require that. That's the way we build things today. In Kirtland, they were building this as they went. They got a little bit of money. They did a little bit more. They found some resources. They put those in. They had some other people who had some time. Then they contributed it. And so it was really on the finances here were on the edge. And so calls for donations of time, of, uh, of money, uh, of resources regularly went out just to keep the construction project going. We're introduced to a, a family that's moving. I think they're moving from New York. Is that right? That's right. Caroline, John, and, and Harrison Tippetts. Can you tell us a little bit about this family and the funds that have been gathered, what they were intended for, and, and how they were used? Yeah, so this is one of those great stories, and there are really thousands of stories like this in the history of the church. But this was a, a family uh, living in New York. They heeded the call to go to Missouri to gather there in the gathering place. And along the way from New York to Missouri, they stop in Kirtland, and they've come bearing the funds. Some of them are their own, but some of them are from other members of their branch. And they uh, are bringing them through on the way to Missouri, and here they encounter the work on the temple in Kirtland, and the opportunity arises for them to make a loan to the temple project. While they're uh, wintering, it's harder to travel in the winter months, so they stay over in Kirtland, and the money is uh, able to be used for the temple. And uh, it's just, to me, it's one of those stories, you know, every Sunday— there's somebody uh, at church donating a small amount, and that's just how the church has grown from the earliest days. Faithful members putting in uh, what they can, or stretching themselves when they need to, and then there are, are ways to use that to build the, the kingdom. I think it's interesting that a, a large portion of the loan that they're able to give to building the temple comes from a really young woman named Caroline, who's only in her very early 20s and gives about $250, I think, of the 850 And I think it's just another fantastic example of somebody who's willing to, like you said, just stretch themselves and give absolutely everything to the church. I'm so impressed with the people that we meet in the, in this narrative who seriously drop everything, either to go preach or to to give all they have financially. It's incredible. So I loved her, her as an example of that faith. Let's, in fact, listen to just a little clip here from the book about this loan and, and about Caroline. Desperate for funds, the council also asked the young men to loan the church some money, promising to repay it before their spring departure. Harrison and John agreed to loan the church part of the $850 from their branch. Since a large portion of that money was Caroline's, the council called her into the meeting and explained the terms of the loan, which she willingly accepted. The next day, Joseph and Oliver rejoiced as they thanked the Lord for the financial relief the Tippetts family had brought. It is uh, incredible how, at the right times, at the, in the moment of need, that Heavenly Father was able to provide through this branch and the Tippetts coming to Kirtland needed funds to help with the Kirtland Temple um, and I appreciate how you compare that to today. It's it's really no different than the tithing slips that are handed into the bishops around the world, branch presidents, in, in helping to continue to move the work forward. 
the next portion of this chapter, we move on to a pretty momentous occasion in this dispensation, the first calling of the 12 apostles. Help us understand what this means and who was involved, how were these men called, and who were they? Yeah, I think the calling of the 12 uh, for the first time in this dispensation is a momentous occasion for many reasons, one of which is that it uh, sets up the church with uh, an organizational structure that allows it to spread throughout the earth and that the 12 can oversee the sharing of the gospel. And so as I think about the, the impact the 12 will have going forward, it's just a really phenomenal part of the church's history. I've always been drawn as well to the origin story of how the 12 were called, because right, right. I think this is just a fascinating piece of the story. And that is that the assignment to identify the, these 12 apostles, these 12 special witnesses of Jesus Christ, that assignment is given to the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon. And I think that there's a, a special significance there, that these three men, uh, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, Martin Harris, who had witnessed the gold plates, they had seen Moroni, they had seen other sacred artifacts, they were really the first to put their testimony in print in this dispensation with the Book of Mormon, testifying of its truth. I think that kind of legacy of witnessing and testimony is what's behind the call of the Twelve and their charge to be witnesses of the Savior and of the Book of Mormon and of the Church and of the Restoration throughout the world. And so it's always been just, I think, uh, to me, kind of a special link between the Three Witnesses and the Twelve. It's fascinating to learn that they knew about this assignment for a little while. They were sort of on the lookout, like trying to f discern who should these men be. And then after some time, uh, then what we learn about in this chapter is they do select the 12. Joseph confirms that these are the right ones, and uh, they are ordained and set apart. Here's a little clip from the book that talks about what these apostles were expected to do. After calling the apostles, Oliver gave them a special charge— Never cease striving until you have seen God face to face, he told them. Strengthen your faith, cast off your doubts, your sins, and all your unbelief, and nothing can prevent you from coming to God. What a powerful charge to these newly called members of the Quorum of the Twelve. And they had been, some, most of them, I'm sure, all of them had been prepared for this important call and some of them had been prepared by sort of challenging experiences. It seems like Joseph indicates in this chapter that eight of the men who would have been involved in the camp of Israel and the experiences that they had there were called to the 12 and, and maybe kind of prepared by that really difficult experience. What do we? What more do we know about the type of men that were chosen and, and what might have prepared them? Yeah, so certainly the camp of Israel experience uh, was significant uh, for, as you mentioned, eight of them. Uh, also, all 12 of them had had the opportunity to go out as missionaries in some context and preach. Missions worked a little different back then. They weren't a two-year calling for a 19-year-old, but it was typical that after somebody converted to the church, then they would go out amongst their neighbors, amongst their family for two months, for four months, for a year. And so all of these men had also had that opportunity to oh, go out and preach and share the message. That's interesting. We have another quorum that is called at the same time. 
We're familiar with this today. We hear this term, the Quorum of the Seventy. Who were these men, and what, was, what assignment were they given? So these men are also responsible in as the church grows. One of the things I think that's important in this era, in the middle of the 1830s, is we see the church uh, really orienting itself to be a, a worldwide church, to have worldwide growth. We often think about that as a 20th century thing, but I think the mindset begins in the beginning. And so these 70 men are, are given a task that uh, harkens back to the 70 who were called in the New Testament to help those disciples to carry the work forward, to carry the burden. And so, uh, and part of it is uh, sharing. As the 12 go uh, forth to the world to bear testimony, the 70 are able to attend to the other duties uh, that, that are required in uh, maintaining the church and, and keeping the church functioning. And so this is an office that's changed over time. It's been at a general level. They've had 70 at a local level. Uh, in recent decades, we've seen uh, a, a re-emphasis on 70 serving at a general or an area level. And uh, in all of those cases, they are supporting the, the worldwide work of the church. There is an interesting topic about both the calling of the Quorum of the Twelve and the Quorum of the Seventy. I just invite our listeners to take a listen to. And as Keith explained, the topic goes into more detail about the development of both of these quorums, their responsibilities, and how they've changed over time. I can remember, because I'm a little bit older, but I, I can remember in 1984 when the local 70s were all released and they were either ordained to be elders or high priests, and the quorums of the 70 were then organized again at a general level of the church. So it hasn't been that long ago that these changes have happened. And as you say, it's fascinating that way back in 1830, we barely have two stakes of Zion, Missouri and Kirtland, and we're already thinking about an organizational structure that can support a worldwide church. I know the readers uh, have much ahead of them in the book, and I don't want to give it away, but very soon the Quorum of the Twelve are going to get assigned to go to England. And so this is literally the start of that worldwide uh, orientation and expansion. In chapter 20, we have another interesting development that comes on the scene. There's this man uh, by the name of Michael Chandler, and he's, he has some interesting artifacts. Can you tell us about Michael Chandler and what he brought to the Kirtland area? Yeah, Michael Chandler shows up in Kirtland, and he has several scrolls of people describe it as parchment or papyrus, uh, old paper. Uh, we don't know how many, but we know there are multiple rolls of these papyrus with writings on them. And he also shows up with some mummies. Uh, and the story that he gives is that they have come to his hands through several transactions, but ultimately they came from Egypt and they wind up in his hands in New York City and he then brings them to Kirtland. This is a time when there's great interest in antiquity, but specifically in um, Egypt and all things Egyptian. And so this was a fairly common thing that there might be artifacts and kind of traveling around and people would come and pay to see those. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And, uh, you know, the, we think, think back to the 19th century, the forms of mass media that we use today weren't there. You wouldn't see 
a documentary on TV. You wouldn't get a, a, a webcast or something to, to learn something. The way that this kind of information was disseminated was by traveling. And so uh, people would uh, regularly bring things throughout the countryside to show what they have or what they've collected or what was interesting. And people would come out to see it. Something would come through town and that would be uh, the entertainment for that weekend or week or a couple of weeks while it was in town. I think it's so interesting that Joseph actually, he purchases some of those artifacts, including what I didn't realize was the book of Abraham. I had no idea that that's where that book came from. Maybe others know, but maybe other readers will be surprised like me that that's where that came from. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So uh, like all curious people in the community, Joseph uh, comes out, he looks at things. Uh, Michael Chandler lets him uh, take the scrolls uh, and look at them closely. And and Chandler was aware that Joseph had translated uh, gold plates, that there was a Book of Mormon. And so Joseph has time to look at the scrolls. And then after doing so, he comes back and says, on uh, at least one of the scrolls somewhere, there were uh, writings that could be traced back to Abraham. And so that became the impetus uh, to purchase them. Now, it's important to remember that Abraham wasn't the person who wrote on that particular piece of parchment. Abraham had lived thousands of years before Joseph Smith. And so uh, what Joseph would encounter would have been a copy of a copy of a copy. Parchment only lasts uh, for so many years. We actually have a couple of fragments in the church history library. We, we have dated, uh, we've used uh, historical dating methods to date these fragments to about two or three hundred years before Jesus Christ. So they are 2,000 years old to us, but that's not uh, enough time to have gone back to Abraham. So someone would have copied Abraham's writings onto one of these scrolls, and that would be the thing that uh, Joseph encountered in the 1830s. Wow, that's incredible. So I would just invite our readers to uh, to look out there on uh, saints.lds.org where you'll find links to the gospel topic essays. One of the essays deals specifically with the book of Abraham and the translation process, which we'll talk about more in another episode. But Keith, do you have any insights for us on just what was this translation process like and where did we get the book of Abraham? Yeah, I think an important starting point for all of the translations that Joseph did is to think about the word translation. There are, from Joseph's experience, there are three products, three things that have come down to us today that we commonly say Joseph translated them. He translated the Book of Mormon, we talk about the Book of Abraham, and we talk about the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. So we have these three things that we can read. In all cases, we use the word translation. But what's interesting is in all three of those, Joseph did different things. The process was different. So today in the 21st century, if you ask somebody, you know, here's something in Egyptian, how would you translate it? I would put it in Google Translate. That's, that's where I would put it. Or you would translate the way we think about there's an expert who knows both languages, who has a dictionary. You sit down maybe in your, uh, you know, in your high school class and you try and work something out with a dictionary knowing the two languages. Well, in the case of the Book of Mormon, Joseph didn't know the language uh, there. And in the case of the Book of Abraham, we do have some records of Joseph making notes of some of the Egyptian symbols and some English descriptions of what those symbols meant. 
And so uh, the mechanics of translation, the process of translation, was different in all three times. In the Book of Mormon, the records are telling us that Joseph uh, looked at a seer stone and dictated words to a scribe. In the case of the uh, Bible, the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible, we know that Joseph sat with a King James version of the Bible, and he read. Uh, it might be better in that case to call it an inspired reading. He would read along. He would be inspired to make corrections. We know that he received revelations and some uh, visionary experiences through that process. With the Book of Abraham, we don't have any record of him reading along in English. We don't have any record of him using a seer stone or, or another object. We see him taking some notes, but those notes don't account for everything uh, that uh, was produced in the Book of Abraham. And so I always just tell people a great starting point is, is to set aside what we think the word translation means in the 21st century, and then just think about how does a prophet of God encounter things and bring them to us in the latter days? And in each time, that process was a little bit different. Thank you very much. That's really helpful to think about it in that way. And I just remind our listeners again that there is a gospel topic essay that talks about this uh, more in depth if you're curious and interested in the translation process for the Book of Abraham. Coming back to Kirtland, we're building the temple. There's a wonderful story that I've heard many times, Keith, and, and it talks about in this story about all the pioneer women taking their fine china and smashing it up and putting it on the outside of the Kirtland Temple. What I read in this book sounded a little bit different. Can you help us understand what do we really know about the outside of the Kirtland Temple and what was used to make it sparkle? Yeah, that's a great question. The story you refer is a wonderful story, and the wonderful part about it is it's mostly accurate. <laughs> uh, this happens a lot uh, in history, uh, in Mormon history, in other histories, history of world history or United States history, that, um, well, the root of the problem is that the, the, all of the past is gone. Uh, the people have passed away, uh, only stories survive, the events are over, and later we go back and we try to learn about them. And one of the things we see is that people who look back, particularly when their ancestor is involved, will uh, add to the story or embellish the story, and this is a case. Uh, and I think one of the best ways to understand this story is, is to link it back to what we were talking about earlier about the finances. This was a community that was uh, just trying to make do, trying to get by with what they had. And so uh, if they're scraping to even build the temple, then it follows that they don't just have massive fancy china collections sitting in an elaborate wooden hutch uh, in their home waiting for someone to say, oh, you should do that. What actually happened is, as they were building uh, the, the temple, as they were looking to finish the exterior, uh, they had an idea that if they could crush up pieces of glass or china, uh, that they could put it in the stucco and that would add a, a sparkle or a shine. And so they just went out. Uh, and in all likelihood, they went and found broken bottles, broken glass, broken window pane. Maybe they were in an area that was more like a, a dump or a place where they set things aside. But the real fact of the matter is that once you crush it up, no matter how fancy it was to begin with, it's a little fleck of glass or china, and it sparkles uh, the same way. And so to me, 
the wonderful part about the story, I think it links back to some of the things that Sarah was talking about earlier, is that there were so many ways to be involved for the temple. And going through the neighborhood and looking for pieces of glass, that's something that a five-year-old can do, a seven-year-old can do. And this was a way uh, that many people got engaged. So I think the, the wonderful part about the story isn't, oh, my ancestor had fancy china and donated it. I think it's more exciting to say, my ancestor was a four-year-old and was out looking for pieces of glass in the field or, or behind the shed or somewhere, and everybody found a way to contribute to the temple. It's, as you said, it's not that the, the other story is untrue. It's a little embellished, but the real story is even better. And that's what I love about saints is, is we're finding those sources and getting to the real details of, of each of these parts of church history. We move along here in the story, and, and Joseph has a brother, William, who is, well, he's difficult. He is a difficult person to, to be with, I think. Let me play a little clip here from the book and just kind of set up a bit of what's, uh, what's happening. Joseph and William have had a, there was a high council meeting, and William felt slighted somehow, and he was just angry, and it was awful. There was this big kind of argument and discussion. Hiram comes in here and tries to fix it. Hiram listened carefully to his brothers. When they finished, he started to give his opinion, but William interrupted, accusing him and Joseph of heaping all the blame on him. Joseph and Hiram tried to calm him down, but he stormed out of the house. Later that day, he sent Joseph his preaching license. What's happening here with William? Well, this is, is a very tough story from church history. Uh, it's also a moving story and, and an inspiring story. But it's. It, I also think it's a story that many of us are likely to encounter in our own lives. Families uh, have rough edges. They bump up against each other. You grew up with someone. You know how to push their buttons. They know how to push your buttons. There are things they do that you dislike. There are things you do that they dislike. So there's certainly just a family dynamic here, uh, older brother, younger brother, siblings. There's also uh, a dimension here from the uh, early 19th century culture related to uh, honor and masculinity. Uh, some of the places we see this in uh, are in the dueling culture. If someone insults you, then you have to defend it with a duel or or some kind of uh, right. demonstration of manhood or strength that you're not walked upon or or belittled, and so we have this, this convergence of the of a normal family dynamic within a culture uh, that prescribes certain roles for men and how they interact, and it just kind of all came together to be uh, a, a really uh, rough interaction between these two brothers. So William. Uh, later starts this debating society. He's having folks over. He figures this is a good way to kind of prepare for missionary work and hone their their skills um, as they speak to large audiences and so forth. And Joseph goes. Um, I kind of interpret that as he's trying to build a bridge back with William. And uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't go so well. Um, let's listen to another little clip here from the book. William grew angry and an argument broke out. Joseph intervened, and soon he and William were exchanging insults. Joseph Sr. tried to calm his sons down, but neither man relented, and William lunged at his brother. Scrambling to defend himself, Joseph tried to remove his coat, 
but his arms got tangled in the sleeves. William struck hard again and again, aggravating an injury Joseph had received when he was tarred and feathered. By the time some of the men wrestled William away, Joseph lay on the floor barely able to move. So this was pretty, well, violent, you know. They're in a fist fight here, and, and William's got him on the floor just pounding on him. What happened, and, and did, did these brothers, at least in Kirtland, did they ever reconcile? Yeah, I think this is a, a good example. You know, we can pull lots of lessons out of history, and we see that their first approach to their disagreement early on was to just kind of go away from each other, be separate for a little while, try and let things cool down. When they come back together in this debating society, it becomes clear that separation didn't work, that cooling off didn't work. And so it elevates uh, to fistfights, to physical violence, and ultimately, the reconciliation comes through another family member, Hiram, uh, and then eventually their parents. It comes through uh, long hours of talking uh, and listening and stating sides and, and listening to the other side. And at least for their time in Kirtland, they are able to make peace from this uh, very violent incident and to continue to work together. I think it's interesting that before they were totally reconciled, I think William told Joseph that he shouldn't be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve anymore. Is that right? And what was Joseph's response? Yeah, William does offer up his license, his preaching license, his place, and Joseph does forgive him. And that, I think, is an important part of this story. And frankly, uh, it's an important part of a lot of the history of the church in the 1830s. There are a lot of people who make offenses and take offenses. There's a lot of forgiveness going on. Uh, Joseph uh, is a very good forgiver. He's a, He forgives regularly. And so forgiveness is part of what keeps families together as much as discussion and as much as, uh, you know, spending time together. That's a really great point. Speaking of families, and perhaps in conclusion uh, for this episode, there's a new family that's born in this episode. Uh, we have two pretty lonely people. Can you can you tell us a little bit about Lydia Bailey and Newell Knight? Well, we do have two very lonely people uh, in in a really tough situation. Uh, Newell is a widower. Uh, his wife has passed away. Uh, Lydia has been abandoned by a husband, uh, and she doesn't know where uh, he is or or what he is doing. One of the things that struck me as I read this story is that this was a very unromantic proposal. It was basically, hey, you're lonely, I'm lonely, maybe we could solve our loneliness. And uh, just a very different uh, interaction than we think about in the, the 21st century and, and romance and romantic we, we love. We can't make a PBS special about this one. <laughs> you know, this one is really pragmatic. Uh, and, you know, we have duties we have workloads uh, and uh, but you know there's a there's an interesting twist here that Lydia even though she doesn't know where her husband is she recognizes that there there was a commitment there and she wants to make sure that she has taken care of that responsibility before she takes on another commitment to marriage and she can't really resolve that cuz we have no idea where Mr. Bailey has gone off to but she approaches the prophet, or rather, Newell approaches the prophet Joseph, and what does what does Joseph tell them? 
Well, he ultimately tells them that it's okay, and he gives them their uh, gives them his blessing. And uh, I, I believe Newell rushes to Lydia to to let her know the good news. Yeah, and they're married the next day. I think. <laughs> Pretty incredible story um, of how individual lives can seek direction from the prophet and. And really, these two great members of the church can come together just to solve their problem of loneliness. Thank you, Keith, so much for joining us here today. And of course, thank you, Sarah, for being here. Just remind our listeners that you can always learn more about the saints uh, at saints.lds.org, where you can explore our latest updates, topics, and videos. You can read or listen to saints in the church history section of the Gospel Library app, and you can download and subscribe to this podcast at the Mormon channel. I'm Ben Godfrey. Thank you for listening. Thanks for joining us today for Saints. And don't forget to read more of this historical narrative on lds.org or on your Gospel Library app. Join us again for our next episode where we'll once again discover fascinating insights of church history found in Saints, the story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days. Mm-hmm.